Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Welcome. Quite an eventful week this past week. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about it. Uh, I was in Dallas uh, speaking at a, a conference. Uh, well, that was fun, but that wasn't the highlight. Um, ever since uh, 1963, I've, I've, I've really been fascinated by the uh, Kennedy assassination. I remember it very well. I was in high school. It happened that uh, the death announcement came at 1 o'clock, and I remember a teacher coming into the room, telling us what had happened, and telling us to go home and watch TV. And uh, I've read a lot, you know, I've watched all of, of the movies, but I'd never been to Dallas before. And uh, now that I was there, I had the chance to go and visit the site. It's, uh, I'm not sure what the proper word to use is. Uh, it's very impactive, certainly, and, and, and very impressive. The uh, building, the former uh, Texas School Depository building, um, now is a, I guess it's a, a federal uh, site, and the sixth floor from where Oswald's shots came is now a museum. It's called the Sixth Floor Museum, and uh, you go up there and uh, you listen. There's an audio tour, and uh, not only do they tell you the whole story of the assassination, but uh, they refer to the era of the time, and there's pictures and movies, and uh, really, really very, very um, interesting. And there actually is an X marks the spot on the pavement in the Daily Plaza where the bullet actually hit. And, you know, no matter how much you've read about it and what movies you've seen, when you're standing there at the window from where he shot and you're looking down, uh, it's just an amazing uh, sight and a very perturbing feeling, of course. It was quite a shot because it's quite far away. And um, he was, I guess, a good shot, but also he was lucky to have hit uh, twice from that, that kind of a, a distance. If you have ever a chance to go to Dallas and to visit the Sixth Floor Museum, you should certainly do that because it is just so interesting and it is uh, so well done. And, of course, there's artifacts. There's Jack Ruby's hat and uh, numerous pictures and, and movies, and uh, really it's a very, very educational um, thing. And then you can go down and you know stand on the grassy knoll, stand exactly where Zapruder was when he shot his uh, famous film, and uh, take in the, uh, the site and uh, the, uh, the atmosphere. I mean, unfortunately, it's not uh, a good memory, but it was certainly a, a very impactive uh, moment in history. So it's sort of interesting to be uh, there at the site where that occurred. All right. Well, anyway, that was uh, last week. And then this uh, past Thursday, we had an anniversary bash. Our office, the McGill Office for Science and Society, was uh, opened uh, 20 years ago. And uh, we had a little celebration we had over 300 people who came, and uh, we treated them with some uh, refreshments and also a retrospective of uh, the kind of things that we have done through our office over the last uh, 20 years. And then we followed with a, a panel discussion where we talked about um, you know, sort of wither 
science communication and what the future is. And we had some very good guests. Uh, we had uh, Tim Caulfield, and Tim was on CJD here last week in conjunction with our, our event. And you probably know Tim. He wrote that great book about is Gwyneth Paltrow wrong about everything. And uh, he is also the host of the Netflix show Cheating Death. So that was it. We celebrated our 20 years, and it was fun to kind of press the flesh with uh, a bunch of folks who um, who have been sort of following us for uh, a long time. And uh, we uh, we also had a bunch of students there who interviewed the uh, the guests to get their impression of, of science and, you know, some of the things that we might do in the future in order to kind of extend ourselves and to get more people uh, involved in separating sense from nonsense in, in the world of, of science. So it was indeed a, a rather uh, interesting and uh, sort of uh, satisfying week. Okay, down to uh, a story. We're going to go to Edinburgh in Scotland. And a druggist by the name of John Scott, who was so taken by the achievements of Benjamin Franklin back in the early 1800s that he established an award to be given annually to a, quote, most deserving man or woman whose invention has contributed in some outstanding way to the comfort, welfare, and happiness of mankind. The John Scott Award was to be administered by a committee in Philadelphia. Now, why Philadelphia? Why did Scott choose this? He didn't live in Philadelphia. He lived in Scotland. He was a native of, uh, of Edinburgh. But Philadelphia was the city where Franklin had carried out most of his experiments, including the one, uh, the famous one, of course, the flying the kite. And whether or not that really happened is, is, is somewhat questionable. It might be an apocryphal kite, a tale. I mean, certainly we know that um, uh, Benjamin Franklin was involved in all kinds of experiments with electricity, but he never himself stated that he had flown that kite. He talked about such experiments in his writings, but he never said that he was the one who actually uh, did that. Anyway, uh, after the establishment of the John Scott Award, uh, there were a number of very famous uh, awardees. Uh, Madame Curie was one, Thomas Edison, uh, Frederick Banting, of course, Canadian, who was uh, involved in the discovery of, of insulin, Jonas Salk of polio fame. But in 1951, at this award ceremony, all guests received a surprise gift. And it seems that you know, maybe they thought it was a rather strange gift until they heard what the whole celebration was about because that gift was a muffin pan. But it was no ordinary muffin pan. It was coated with Teflon, the nonstick substance that had been discovered by Roy Plunkett, the DuPont chemist, who was that year's John Scott Award honoree. Well, within a couple of years, after 1951, everyone knew about his discovery, Teflon, and people were flocking to stores to purchase an array of non-stick cookware. Teflon had been an accidental discovery. In 1938, DuPont was searching for novel substances to replace ammonia and sulfur dioxide. Those were the gases that were used as refrigerants commonly in those days. Now, the, the way refrigerators work is, is actually quite simple. Um, you have uh, a gas that can be compressed to a liquid, 
And of course, when a liquid evaporates and changes to a gas, it requires heat to do that. So the heat is then taken from inside of the refrigerator. That's how refrigerators work. But the problem with ammonia and sulfur dioxide was that if they ever leaked out of the equipment, they were highly toxic. So the company was looking for non-toxic replacements. And Plunkett was experimenting with tetrafluoroethylene gas that he had made and he had stored in cylinders. And one day he opened the cylinder and no gas came out. But curiously, the cylinder had lost no weight. His curiosity aroused, Plunkett cut the cylinder open and discovered a white powder that had some amazing properties. It was resistant to heat. Virtually every chemical he tried, including oil and water, didn't touch the stuff. But the substance's most impressive property was that nothing would stick to it. On further investigation, Plunkett realized that the small molecules of tetrafluoroethylene had joined together to form a polymer, later to be christened Teflon. And this is why he got that 1951 prize, and everyone was given this piece of strange equipment, or so it must have seemed, a muffin pan, but nothing would stick to it. And the era of Teflon was underway. Okay, we're going to take a little bit of a break, and uh, after that, we'll be back to talk about uh, an interesting uh, way in the 1700s that they tried to resuscitate people who had drowned in the Thames River. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I have a question for you. What item of jewelry increases its value thanks to an insect. So what jewelry item can have its value increased thanks to an insect? If you know the answer to that, you can text us 514-800 or 514-790-0800, 514-790-0800. I was uh, talking just before uh, the break about Teflon and its discovery, but there is a follow-up story to that. Well, first of all, the reason that uh, Teflon has the unique properties that it has, that is it totally unreactive and nothing sticks to it, is because its molecular structure has a periphery of fluorine atoms around it. And uh, fluorine atoms are notoriously unreactive when they are bound to carbon as they are in, uh, in, in Teflon. Anyway, after the discovery, uh, finding what this structure of Teflon was, there was obviously um, a lot of research trying to find other so-called polyfluorinated substances that could be useful. And many of these were developed, finding uses in paper products and textiles, carpets, paints, medical equipment, plumbing tape, dental floss, food packaging, uh, wire insulation, camping gear, and uh, firefighting foams. And that's an interesting story too, the firefighting foams, uh, because use of these chemicals there was prompted by a fire aboard an aircraft carrier. And that was back in 1967, when a fire broke out aboard the USS Forrestal. And um, it happened because a rocket was accidentally launched uh, on the deck of this uh, uh, carrier. And the rocket uh, hit a squadron of uh, planes waiting to take off. The planes were armed, they were fully fueled. So there was a huge fire 
and uh, killed 130 people. The foam that was used at that time to try to put out the fire was unable to spread evenly over the burning fuel to smother it. And this led to the development of foams that contain various polyfluorinated compounds that serve as lubricants allowing the foam to spread. Such foams were subsequently installed on military and civilian ships, airplanes, and, and airports. Now, as you can imagine, whenever these foams are used, some of it gets washed down into water systems. And it's one of the reasons that, that we are exposed to these fluorinated compounds. And by the 1970s, some of the shine began to wear off these widely used polyfluorinated compounds with the finding that they were environmentally persistent and they were showing up in the blood of occupational exposed workers. And then in the 1990s, they were being detected in the blood of the general population, as well as in some drinking water supplies. <laughs> of course, I have to, to, to add that just because you detect something doesn't mean that it's doing anything. But uh, by uh, about 20 years ago, it was becoming uh, sort of uncomfortable to find that these chemicals were showing up in our, our blood because in test animals, they were being li linked to reproductive problems and some even to, to cancer. Uh, but I have to tell you that there are some 3,000 of these polyfluorinated compounds that n are now in use, and only some of them have been linked with these, uh, these issues. But nevertheless, it is enough to start paying attention uh, to this. Why? Because uh, although men are not large mice, when you find reproductive problems in mice, it means that there's something further to be uh, looked into. And it seems that some of these polyfluorinated compounds uh, have an effect on uh, testosterone levels in the bloodstream. They can interact with, with uh, testosterone receptors and uh, basically mimic the action of, uh, of testosterone. And testosterone is, of course, a very important uh, hormone. And uh, when you don't have the right amount of it in the blood, it can certainly lead to uh, various kinds of problems. Uh, in fact, uh, a recent study in, in Italy was very interesting because they compared uh, high school students who were living in the area of Veneto, which is an area very close to, to Venice, uh, where there are a couple of plants that manufacture these polyfluorinated compounds. So there is an unusually high amount of uh, these in the environment. And uh, they also had a control group of uh, high school students who lived elsewhere in Italy where there was no exposure to these, these chemicals. And these students agreed to have uh, various uh, parts of their anatomy measured, uh, such as the part that characterizes men and makes them quite different from women. And it turned out that in the area where there was uh, a higher concentration of these polyfluorinated uh, alkyl substances um, in the water and therefore in the blood of these students, uh, they also uh, suffered from uh, shortness in that important part of the anatomy. Uh, and when researchers measured the distance between their anus and their genitals, that also uh, was different. And uh, it was shorter. And turns out that that distance, the anogenital distance, is actually hormonally controlled. So here we have a demonstration that very, very small amounts of substances that turn up in the environment and therefore in, in human bodies can have uh, an effect. Now, of course, this was a particular area where because of the um, 
the presence of the of these plants that were producing these these chemicals, there was an unusual amount of it in in uh, in the groundwater. This is not something that that we have to worry about here, but there are other areas of the world where there is such manufacturing. And if the materials, the leftover substances, are not properly uh, stored or, or or incinerated or gotten rid of in some other way, but are released into the environment, there is certainly the possibility of some sort of reproductive harm and maybe even cancer. And there already have been lawsuits around some of the DuPont manufacturing facilities in the U.S., where people claim that some of the health problems that they are experiencing are due to the release of these uh, chemicals into the uh, environment. Uh, so, uh, you know, we, we tend to, uh, sometimes to dismiss the potential toxicity of substances just because they are found very low uh, concentrations in the environment. But the fact is that when you're talking about what we refer to as endocrine disruptors, you know, chemicals that have hormone-like properties, uh, it is certainly possible uh, that even small amounts can have an effect. However, uh, there were many, many headlines based upon that Italian study that said things like, it's time to throw out your Teflon cookware. Well, no, hang on to your Teflon cookware, including your Teflon muffin uh, pans, because there is no leaching of any of these chemicals from that finished product. The concern is during the manufacturing process. That's when some of the monomers, as we call them, can be released. But once they have joined together to form a polymeric substance, uh, you don't have release of these. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with using your Teflon pots and pans. In fact, it's uh, healthier than many other uh, types of cookware because you tend not to burn the food. And burned food certainly has some carcinogens. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We're going to take a break and be right back with the story that I promised you earlier about people drowning in the Thames. Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I asked the question about uh, what jewelry item increases in value thanks to an insect, and I think Judy may have the answer to that. Hi, Judy. Hi. How are you? Okay. What's the answer? Amber, of course, right. And I have an amber necklace. Do you? And do you have an insect in it? No. No. Well, amber itself is quite valuable. Uh, it's, of course, a resin that's exuded by a tree that has aged over many, many years. And sometimes when that resin exudes, it traps an insect. Yes, and actually in St. Petersburg, there's a beautiful amber room. Yes, there is. I, I actually saw that. I, yeah. yeah, I saw that. And there's a gold room as well. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and that was. Is quite beautiful. It is. Okay, that's very good. And, and I actually, there are many colors of amber. There are. There's greenish and reddish. Mine and is kind yellow. of orangey, yellowy. Yeah, that's the most common common one. Yeah, it can be quite beautiful, and there are of course interesting stories behind it. And I will go on to tell you one because that's the reason I asked this question. Okay. okay. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Thank okay. You. So uh, I'll be uh, back to Amber in a minute, but of course I tantalized you about the people drowning Thames story. And for this, we're going to go back to the 1700s, 1774. And there was a paper published by two physicians at that time. And uh, <laughs> it was uh, uh, very interesting because the paper talked about affording immediate relief to persons apparently dead from drowning. Well, what was this about? Uh, 
when a, quote, apparently dead from drowning person was pulled from the Thames River, uh, these doctors thought that there were two things that had to be done to resuscitate them. One, the body had to be warmed and the body somehow had to be stimulated. And at that time, tobacco was becoming very popular in Europe and uh, it was a well-known stimulant. And of course, we know why that is, because nicotine, of course, is indeed a, a stimulant. But it was quite obvious that someone who had just been pulled from the river was not going to be able to smoke. So these two doctors devised a device. And believe it or not, it was a device that would uh, blow tobacco smoke into the person who had been pulled from the river. But it would be blown in a very interesting way, it, through the rear portals, let us say. And uh, these tobacco smoke enema devices were placed all along the Thames River, very much like today we have the defibrillators placed all over the place. Well, of course, there's no evidence that they ever were able to resuscitate anyone with the um, with this device, which used bellows to, to pump tobacco smoke into uh, the person who had been pulled from, uh, from the river. But there were also other uses, supposedly, for this device. They were supposed to stimulate even people who had not drowned in, in the river. Of course, there's no ev any evidence that uh, this device afforded, quote, immediate relief to persons apparently dead from drowning. Uh, but nevertheless, it is a very interesting um, uh, use of tobacco smoke back in those days. And the uh, equipment came with the bellows and an ivory tube that was to be put into the uh, rear of the person, uh, attached to the bellows, and they would be then pumped full of, uh, of tobacco smoke. Very, very interesting uh, history. And, uh, of course, today we no longer have these uh, kind of uh, devices that blow smoke up people's uh, you-know-what. But unfortunately, there are still a lot of people who are inhaling uh, tobacco smoke. And uh, although we are cutting down on it here in North America, uh, unfortunately, in much of the developing world, especially in China, uh, tobacco smoking is, is still very, very uh, extensive. Okay, well, but let me get back to um, amber because it is really such a uh, interesting uh, uh, substance. And uh, the name amber actually uh, originally comes from uh, the Latin term succinum for um, sweet stuff because uh, when you grind up the amber and, and taste it, it apparently does have a, a sweet taste. I don't know, I've never uh, tried that. But anyway, amber is the hardened form of this liquidy resin that certain trees produce to ward off insects and to seal their wounds. Uh, but you know what, you should see a resin oozing from a tree. <laughs> don't bother waiting around for it to form amber uh, because that may take a few million years. Uh, that's about how long it takes for the complex mixtures of chemicals in the resin to harden into amber. Uh, there are many, many compounds in amber. The major components of the resin are compounds we call terpenes. And over many, many years, they engage in a reaction to produce long molecules that eventually cross-link and form a tough three-dimensional network. So basically, amber is uh, polymerized terpenes, and the color depends on the extent of polymerization, as well as on air bubbles and, and some non-volatile compounds that get embedded. 
And succinic acid is one of these non-volatile components, and it makes up about 3 to 8% of a sample of amber by weight. Well, woe to any insect that had the misfortune of getting in the way of the oozing resin. Its destiny was to become a mummified inclusion in the amber. Indeed, the most valuable amber pieces are the ones with spectacularly preserved insect inclusions. And uh, I used to have one. I don't have it anymore. I gave it to uh, my grandson, uh, who I think will get more pleasure out of it. And, of course, I also told him the story, the same one that I will tell you. Uh, I bought that piece of amber in the Dominican Republic, uh, which, along with the Balkan countries, is a hotbed for uh, amber. And... Uh, the reason I say I think I had one is that thanks to the wonders of chemistry, fakes have widely invaded the world of amber. And celluloid and uh, phenolformaldehyde resins like bakelites and, and plexiglass and polystyrene have all been used to produce forgeries. Uh, there's one way to tell, well, several ways to try to tell the forgery. Uh, one is that, that when an insect gets embedded in real amber, it tries to struggle. So it will be sort of in a contorted form inside of the uh, uh, of the amber, whereas if the amber is fake, the fakers tend to put an insect into it, and the insect still looks like it's nice, well spread out. You know, it's not contorted. Uh, supposedly, one can also tell the difference by density. Amber will float in salt water, and the plastic uh, uh, will not. It's not a totally trustworthy test because the inclusion of some air bubbles can allow plastics to float. A better test is to apply the point of a very hot needle to the sample. True amber will release a piney smell, something like the odor of turpentine. And that comes as no surprise, since turpentine is produced from pine wood, and like amber, it is formed from terpenes. Now, I'll tell you another interesting story. This takes me back a few years on this very radio show. When I was bemoaning the reluctance to apply that hot needle treatment to my amber, and because I didn't want to destroy it, I got a quick call from a listener advising me that there was a simple, non-destructive way to tell if I had authentic amber. I just needed to get my hands on a teething baby. <laughs> a teething baby, believe it or not. Why? Because uh, she claimed that um, these um, amber teething rings that you give to crying babies work really well, and a plastic ring would not work as well. So if I wanted to find out... Uh, all I had to do was get my hands on, on a crying, teething baby, uh, have him chew on my uh, piece of amber, and if it calmed him down, I'd know that I had real amber. Well, I never did get my hands on a teething baby, but I don't think I missed anything because uh, amber does not calm down teething babies. There's no evidence for that at all, although these amber necklaces are sold for teething purposes in drugstores, but there's zero evidence that they do anything that other such teething objects do not do. We're going to take a break. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show, and we'll be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Had a question texted in. Does overheating Teflon pans produce a gas toxic to birds? That is actually true. But it would have to be really extensive overheating. The pan would have to get red hot. It's like 
having forgotten it on, on the stove because that will then start to break down the Teflon, but that needs intense heat. And when it breaks down, it releases some uh, hydrogen fluoride gas, and that can be toxic to birds. This is, is true, uh, but it is very, very unlikely to happen under normal conditions. I mean, if you're just cooking in Teflon pots and pans with, with some liquid in it, and you don't forget it on the, the stove, you don't have to... to to worry, but it is true that uh, if it th those unusual conditions are met, it can be a problem for uh, for birds. You know, we talk a lot about fake news because it's all over the place. But what about uh, fake blood? How do you make that? Well, blend some corn syrup, some water, some flour, red food dye, blue food dye together in the right ratio, and you know what you get—a great batch of fake blood. It won't be of any good for transfusions, of course, but when it comes to movies, it makes for a very effective substitute for the real thing. By no means is this the only recipe that's used. Over the years, special effect experts have developed numerous variants, but the most common base is some sort of syrup composed of a combination of simple carbohydrates. Addition of water and flour provides the right consistency, and a blend of food dyes gives the right color. Red food dye by itself is, is just too bright. But you add a small amount of blue and you've got just the right color for blood. Some special effect experts prefer a mix of red dye and cocoa powder. In black and white films, the exact shade of fake blood is less important. And Alfred Hitchcock used straight Bosco chocolate syrup in the classic shower scene. And of course, you remember that scene in, uh, in Psycho. First introduced in 1928, Bosco syrup, still around. It's made of corn syrup and cocoa with sugar and malt extract added for taste and xanthan gum as a thickener. The syrup garnered publicity in 1997 when Brazilian artist Vic Muniz used it to paint a replica of Leonardo da Vinci's famous Last Supper. Although this was a first for chocolate syrup, other artists have used various substances to produce their own versions of the painting. These have included rock salt, stamps, toasts, spiderwebs, Rubik's cubes, and vegetables. Oh, you know what? Human ingenuity just has no boundaries. The composition of Bosco syrup today is not the same as when Hitchcock used it for Psycho in 1960. The main difference is that high fructose corn syrup is now one of the ingredients because it allows for the same degree of sweetness in spite of using less sugar, a more expensive ingredient. Corn syrup and high fructose corn syrup are not identical products. Cornstarch is a white powder chemically composed of polymers of glucose, meaning that it consists of hundreds of glucose molecules joined together either in a straight chain, we call that amylose, or in branch chain, am amylopectin. If the starch is treated with dilute hydrochloric acid, the chains break down to yield a mix of individual glucose molecules along with maltose, which is two glucose units joined together. Various short glucose chains known as oligosaccharides also form. Today, instead of using an acid, a mixture of cornstarch and water is treated first with uh, alpha amylase, which is a bacterial enzyme that breaks the starch down into smaller fragments followed by the addition of another enzyme, gamma amylase, and uh, that's uh, taken from aspergillus fungus and converts some of these oligosaccharides to glucose. 
So anyway, I mean, there's a lot of interesting chemistry that is involved there in this uh, Bosco syrup. So you know, we've we've gone from uh, fake blood to some chemistry of uh, of syrups. Uh, I wrote a, a column uh, yesterday in the Montreal Gazette uh, about uh, the color of hamburger, and. Uh, that was prompted by a lady who thought that she was uh, perhaps being uh, uh, somehow cheated by her butcher because she opened her package of hamburger meat and while it looked very fresh and red on the outside, uh, when she started to dig into it and, and make little patties, she found that the inside had turned brown and she figured that the butcher had taken some fresh meat and packed it around older meat. Well, it turns out that that is really not the case. It's not the case. The reason that uh, hamburger meat is red is because it is exposed to oxygen. The color is due to a compound called oxymyoglobin. Myoglobin is, is found in meat. In fact, uh, it is one of the molecules that stores oxygen within meat. However, once an animal is slaughtered and there's no longer any circulation, of course, there's no more oxygen being delivered to tissues. And the myoglobin loses its oxygen and uh, it becomes a dark purplish kind of, of, of color. However, if you introduce oxygen again, then you can combine the oxygen with the myoglobin and you get this reddish color. So when hamburger is, is, is ground and, and packaged, it is packaged in a particular kind of plastic, happens to be polyethylene, that allows some oxygen to pass through. Now you know that the air is composed of 80% nitrogen and 20% oxygen, roughly, and some of that oxygen seeps through the plastic and reacts with the myoglobin to form oxymyoglobin, which is red. But the oxygen does not diffuse into the body of the hamburger, and therefore that has the, the basic color of myoglobin, which in fact turns a little bit even darker brown as it converts to substance called metmyoglobin. And that happens in the absence of, uh, of oxygen. So no, there's nothing nefarious uh, here. The butcher was not trying to, to pull the wool over our uh, customer's eyes, but it makes for a very interesting chemical story. Well, of course, uh, Another interesting story is what you do with that hamburger once you have bought it and stopped worrying about whether it is brown or red on the inside. You're going to cook it. And uh, therein lies a problem. Uh, not only do we have accumulating evidence about you know meat consumption not being great for us and that people who are vegetarians and vegans have sort of a healthier outlook, uh, but when you make a hamburger and you cook it at a high temperature, as many people do because you barbecue it, the barbecuing process causes the transformation of many of the compounds in the hamburger into what we call heterocyclic amines and polycyclic aromatics. And these, when given to test animals, are carcinogenic. And we know when we look at population studies that people who consume a lot of meat cooked at a high temperature, such as barbecued meats, do have higher incidence of various kinds of, of cancers. So maybe it's better just to admire the color change of the hamburger looking through the plastic and uh, forget about unwrapping it and putting it on the barbecue. Maybe you want to try a, oh, heaven forbid, a tofu burger. Okay, anyway, that's it. We have uh, run out of time. 
But we'll be back with you same time, same station next week to discuss some uh, more developments in the world of science and bring you up to date on some more interesting and curious scientific stories. You've been listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be back with you same time, same station next week. And remember, you can always listen to the show on podcasts. And also remember to check out our website, which is www.mcgill.ca slash OSS, where you will be informed and entertained. And until we meet again next week, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.